Let's talk about digital identity, the podcast connecting identity and business. I am your host, Oscar Santolaya. Hello, and thank you for joining a new episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity. What are the cultural aspects of digital identity? So that's definitely a good question and a very relevant question. And this is one of the questions that our guest today is going to answer. Our guest today is Kalev Pihel. He has worked with digital identity over 25 years. He started with a topic in governmental site, preparing Estonia for electronic identity on national identity cards. Since then, Kalev has worked in the financial sector and in Microsoft. During the last 15 years, he has been the CEO of SKID Solutions, a trust service provider that serves digital identities in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Hello, Kalev. Hello, Scott. It's nice talking with you, Kalev. It's been a wait. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Kalev. So let's talk about digital identity. And the first thing we want to hear from our guest is something about yourself and especially your journey to this world of digital identity? I think that the uh, journey to digital identity for me went through this very physical, uh, governmentally controlled national identity. So that was my starting point. And I, I guess that's where I'm a bit stuck with my mindset as well sometimes. And, <laughs> um, and this is my, my limit. But that's how it started. So it started from the idea that in the world of physical uh, human beings, Governments tend to have this role in society to name, number, and identify the residents they treat as the residents of the country we are speaking about. And whilst we have probably different other nicknames in different other societies, then somehow globally these governmental issued identities have become the norm of how do you, how do we know each other across the world? How do we identify? the people whom we don't know beforehand. So I think from that angle, I, I've stuck with the idea that governments have the role of naming and identifying who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed, I think is. I mean, it might be probably in the in the constitution in most countries. I don't, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm sure it's, it's written in some of the, <laughs> some of the laws. So that, that's one of the functions of the governments. And, and yeah, and that has been translated in our very, let's say, not very recent time, but talking especially in the last maybe 20 years that we have such digital identifications like Estonia is pioneering and in a few other countries as well. It's, it's pretty digital, pretty well well established. Yeah, I think that the, for the beginning of any country or state in a physical world, some limits, some, some borders, what is the ground they own, then we are talking about some legal framework, what is the what is the agreement, and then we need to know between whom is the agreement, and those are then the human beings in this society. And that's kind of what every state or country is made of, I would say. And that's something that if we go now from this real-life identity and try to tackle the digital identity idea, then, then there are two kinds of attitudes. One is that digital world is borderless, global or universal even, and therefore doesn't require and has no relation to any 
these kind of physical limitations and, and uh, countries, states, uh, and therefore like no borders, no anything. And then the other is that it is just, it should be, is, and will be always a reflection of something that physically makes sense. And only then it becomes meaningful in a larger context when it is physically meaningful. So I, I think that that's one of the starting points, if we, if we say that there is point to the cultural differences, then the culture that uh, we start off is clearly not so much digital, but rather what is the culture before any digital. And then definitely we have different digital cultures as well. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's true. Every every country has internally a different culture. Well, some often several cultures in, inside a country as well. And this is something that shapes uh, digital identities that we we, the ones who are in this industry, have been shaping and continue shaping today. So, yeah, tell me more about that role that the culture play in shaping and influencing the current and the ones that are coming in the digital identity. Yeah, sure. That's the topic for today. So the culture that we can see in the, in the digital identities is quite a lot related to the uh, ways how we culturally trust our own governments, how the government trusts its citizens, residents, uh, and also it's very tightly connected to the idea of what is and how the privacy as such is defined in the society. And a couple of episodes ago, you, you discussed heavily again this kind of ISO standard on the privacy. And privacy is something that is, is cultural as well, and it's not globally, universally defined as a value and where the value kind of lies actually. And this cultural difference is how they look in the digital identities is exactly, I would say, let's take the two uh, extremes. One of those extremes is that digital identity is something that is central, that binds all of the digital actions that one does in the digital world together and, and therefore makes you, in essence, traceable, recognized everywhere. You cannot hide in a digital world based on that identity. This identity reveals you everywhere. And then we have the other extreme. We have digital identity that must, in essence, by definition, protect you from being recognized from one environment to another. You must have different representation in different contexts. You have to have the right not to be recognized, not to be traced. So I, I would say that culturally, the uh, need might be on both of those extremes and something in, in the middle. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, something that we are struggling globally now, that, that we are trying to talk about digital identity and what this identity does, what kind of privacy does it guarantee and what the privacy means to anybody. And then we, then we are stuck with the fact that we don't define the digital identity. We believe that everybody understands the identity and digital identity in the same manner. And then we also try to say that the privacy is preserved, privacy is granted, privacy is by default, as, as we like to say, or by definition and by default. But what this privacy means in this context of digital identity and usability also is not defined. So we, we kind of use the buzzwords and we neglect the background from which we come from. And therefore, we don't understand each other and we try to regulate that into different places and, well, do a lot of mistakes in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense to you, Oscar. 
Of course, a lot of sense. So one concept, one, one particular concept you mentioned is privacy, right? Which can, well, not can, but means different things in different cultures, in different countries. That's true. I understand that. And it's a challenge to try to, yeah, to have a definition and, and based on that, create the laws, create a, the technologies that that support that. Yeah, indeed, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very good reflection that you are doing. I think that with the privacy, again, similarly, like there are those extremes. And, and as I said, one of those extremes is on this identity and uh, definition regarding that privacy is that, okay, the, the privacy means that there is no data about me anywhere that I specifically didn't reveal myself knowingly giving the consent to that specific data to be revealed about me, which makes me in the center of all the transactions about me and, well, gives me a lot of work, let's be honest, because there are several institutions all the time that work kind of for me, make my digital life easier, and they need to make decisions. And if those decisions need my data, then therefore I need to make a lot of decisions to reveal or not reveal that data to them. And the other side of that is, and I would say the other way of looking at the same privacy, kind of from the same concept, still Mm -hmm. saying that privacy is preserved, privacy is kind of granted and by default, by definition, is that whenever your data is used, then you, by nature of the setup, have the control over who and where and for what used your data and therefore you can kind of trace back it and say that, well, why did you do one or the other thing? And if they didn't have the right, didn't have your permission, didn't have legal rights to something, then they will be punished by the law. So it's kind of one is preventing anything to happen upfront. The other is giving the privacy through the control that you know everything that has happened with your data and therefore you are able to take the the parties involved and make them responsible for their actions. So like these are maybe a couple of ideas of how to look at the privacy from different angles as well. Yeah, indeed. In the case of privacy, just just to give a, a concrete example. But how this would start if privacy or any other concept has to be defined based on the on the culture of a country or, or, or a region. So how this has to be de- defined? Yeah, the, the question then, uh, when we talk about like building, creating digital identity, mm-hmm. we kind of often think that this is one type of thing to be done everywhere. What mm-hmm. I've learned over the years, and I've really had uh, happy accidents of meeting so many different countries, cultures in different places, talking about digital identity now, really tens of years, then it still turns out that we are building the digital identity for a specific set of human beings. And those human beings have some connection to a culture, even if that's a digital culture, even if we say that digital identity in a social network like Instagram is a digital identity for the people who use Instagram, who have some cultural preferences, otherwise they wouldn't use that Mm -hmm. environment. So they have kind of agreed to a a cultural norms there. Or if we say that we are are looking at a country somewhere in the world, like Thailand or or Mexico, then, then we are building the digital identity for that culture that suits the beliefs and traditions of that set of human beings. It's not one 
size fits all, but rather that this one size fits one kind of thinking that I'm now become to believe more into in a, in a recent years that there is no this one single solution that everybody will kind of inherently fell in love into. <laughs> <laughs> they have so many things in their historical uh, backpack that it will definitely tilt their preference. They have some bias to expect something that any other culture would never ever expect from the same solution. And we have to be designing mindfully those digital identity solutions for a specific culture. And I think that this is a value in the world that we do believe uh, in different things. We do act based on different preferences culturally, and that makes us interesting as human beings. We are not the same everywhere in the world. And, and how to kind of preserve that in the digital world, how not to become culturally one and the same, following one and the same set of rules everywhere, having the same solutions everywhere, is an interesting, interesting challenge, I would say, for the humanity. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, it is. And, and I agree when, when you said that there shouldn't be like one one solution to be somehow imposed to the globally. That is the reason why they are in practice. I mean, that's the reason why they just in the case of the national digital identities, the one from Estonia is different from the one from Finland, Sweden, Singapore, etc. They are based on similar underlying technologies, OpenID Connect, publicly infrastructure, etc. But in the end they are they were designed differently because they are solving problem for these different cultures. That's correct. Like facial recognition anywhere in the world, fingerprint-based uh, identification somewhere. Like Those are things that either are or are, are not culturally meaningful. Like I would say that Western Europe has some kind of cultural uh, connection in taking, giving, and recognizing fingerprints. And it's deeply, I would say, related to the criminalistics and and then crime. And therefore, this kind of feeling when somebody asks your fingerprint somewhere, well, wasn't very, very pleasant, I would say. (laughs) Touch ID and other similar kind of things have now a bit eased this uh, feeling. But if we are talking on the national level, fingerprint collection, fingerprint-based recognitions, then this feeling is still there, whilst it isn't there with a face. Although, like, if we talk technologically, then then it doesn't matter based on which kind of biometrics I recognize you. Mm-hmm. But the acceptability within the culture, like face versus fingerprint, was really, really different. Still is a bit different. And uh, the same kind of rooting in the criminology didn't appear in many Asian countries, in some Middle East countries, where these fingerprint-based quick recognition tools in a physical interactions were introduced, and, and there was no objection from the uh, society. It was very, very acceptable. So all of those kind of bits that we are taking from different, either literature, either uh, some really historical reference that we take with us, those do change the way how we are able or not able to roll out any given technology for the digital identity. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good example, the one on the fingerprints. I didn't think about that, but yeah, it doesn't surprise me that in different parts of the world, it, the perception is completely different, and it's it's, it's just the culture, as, as you said. Yeah, facial recognition in in Middle East countries, revealing your face in public for female uh, 
citizens, well, it's not very common. Again, something that, that again, we from the Western Europe don't recognize easily, but, but it is. It, it is a thing. Could you share now some successful examples or I mean, maybe not. It sounds like from this discussion side, like there are not many, at least 100% successful examples, but some, in some extent, successful examples of how this cultural human aspect has been taken in, into account to deliver good solutions for data identity. Well, being a uh, CEO of SKI Solutions, I of course have to tell that I, I believe that we have been able to deliver for at least the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia solutions which are relevant for the culture where we are providing those services. And in that regard, we have also faced some clear um, opposition from the cultural perspective in some areas here. But yeah, that's one of the things that maybe is possible here and isn't possible in some other countries. So our current service that is really used for like more than half of the population in the Baltic countries is based on the fact that people know and use their national identity code as a unique identifier for themselves, and it is used in different, different environments. Nobody's kind of creating unique identifier per any kind of system. The same pretty much applies to the Nordic countries. But then when we would take that concept, the same concept, that is successful in variations also in Finland, in Sweden, in Norway, Those are all kind of based on the single one identity. And all of them have, like Bank ID in Sweden is definitely a success story from the usability and the amount of users behind it. They are based on this idea that there is this one unique identifier and you can reuse that in different environments. And it's really serving the culture there and here. So I would say that this is the way how it has been functionally well rolled out. And we have to then say that the same ideology would not be allowed, possible, accepted, for example, in German, that kind of falls to the pieces in the border of uh, Germany, simply isn't welcomed there by constitution, because the constitution in Germany says that, well, you shouldn't. You should never, ever create a solution where user is reusing its attributes in a manner that you can trace them from one, mm. let's say, governmental institutions to another, from one company to another, you have to be messed up everywhere where you try to figure out if that same person came from one institution to another. You, you are bound to, by constitution, to be puzzled by that. All right. Well, interesting. But that's uh, that defined by law in, in that in that case. Similarly, it is, it is not allowed in Hungary, for example, to have a unique identifier for a person. And what were the objections or the reactions you had in, you mentioned earlier in, in the Baltic, so what, what was not culturally accepted, let's say, there? Yeah, one of the things was that really this identity code is semantically meaningful, and to use that as a user ID at some points definitely was kind of a controversial and, and needed longer and uh, public debate. In Estonia, I think at 15 years plus, quite long public debate about whether really the uh, identity code as such can be publicly shared. And then it turned out that the reason actually, well, there's definitely the semantic part that it really reveals 
your birth date, which means that, mm. well, somebody can understand how old you actually are. Yes, yes. But the more practical reason for objecting that was that, that it turned out that, and it still is the case, like, for example, in US, uh, a lot of that kind of identity breaches that we are discussing and which are like big, big, big fuss around the world, those are based on the uh, notion that this kind of user identity, for example, the social security number in in US, it is not treated as user ID, but rather as a password. And those are very different things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, one is the link, like this is who you are, and the other is proof that it is you, that the claim is actually correct, that this is your user identity. So when it turned out to be kind of public, then then what uh, use cases were hit and what was discussed quite a lot was this type of phone-based service when you call in and, and uh, the operator asks to identify you, your unique identifier, which is public, which is listed everywhere you have, where you have ever been, which is written into your identity document, mm-hmm. but still, as there was no better alternative, then they opted for asking you for the identity code. And therefore, if that was now used publicly everywhere, well, everybody understood that it cannot be used anymore. And somehow the discussion, thankfully, has has gone to that direction, at least in this region, that it wasn't the right thing to do from the beginning to ask this identity code as a password, because it has never been meant to be secret. The fact that not everybody in the world knows that doesn't make it a secret. Mm, yeah, yeah. So what is nowadays, tell me, in Estonia, what is the, how do you call it, the, the username, or there is such a username in, for, for this identity? Tell us how it, how it works. Yeah, it's like 11 number uh, identity code, and it really mm-hmm. consists of your, like six numbers of that represent your birth date, and uh, one of those, then uh, seventh one gives the century and the sex you are being given. And then uh, there are four digits that you have to really randomly kind of remember and has been long discussion whether those should be or could be changed and now in Finland in uh, in Latvia as well we have had this experiment of uh, of introducing another identity code uh, instead of the semantically meaningful one and this semantically meaningful identity code can be like in Latvia you can once in a life go and replace your Meaningful, semantically meaningful identity code to this new uh, identity code, which doesn't mean anything anymore. Okay. It's only a couple of years old, this project there. So I cannot say how successful it is. Mm-hmm. But what is interesting with this 11 digit code, really, that is based on a birthday, is that most of the people are able to remember it because the yeah. birthday <laughs> is something that you can remember. If a society like Estonia, would be able to remember just random 11 digits correctly. I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> like bigger populations, I'm even less sure because they should have like more digits remembered. Mm-hmm. Maybe it then should be based some kind of, in somehow already based in letters and names and, and so on. So in Estonia, it really is semantically meaningful 11 digits, mm-hmm. which you can easily remember. And people normally do remember their identity code. They are reusing that on a daily basis in different contexts. Therefore, it is something that is not 
also easy to forget because the society requires you to remember it. And that is also this identifier we are using to allow you to kind of state who you are in the electronic identity context. And the same applies to uh, Latvia, Lithuania. And then the other, maybe just remember the other part of what was discussed in this context of electronic identity, then yeah, for the identification, maybe the the semantical um, information to recognize person is maybe okay. And then, but is it okay for the signature? And then therefore we have had a discussion of where in the, uh, in the signature, this type of information should appear or not appear mm-hmm. at all. So again, something that we were now discussing, not so much on this user identity, but, but still on this, uh, on signature part, but, uh, you should still uniquely identify who signed something, but do you need anything other than this identification of this unique person, whether it makes any sense, again, discussion, cultural discussions not happening in all countries in a similar manner. Some cultures are more kind of prone to say that it shouldn't be there. Others say that it is actually, well, impossible to do without. It's very, very, very different already in those three countries. I don't know if I answered your question, actually. Yeah, yeah, indeed. You have definitely illustrated pretty well uh, how it works in, in Estonia and, and also in the Baltics. And that gives us a clear idea that, the, yeah, the problem that you are bringing here is, uh, <laughs> is of course, it's big and it's, it continues. So as you say, there are some experiments in Latvia, Finland, and there are discussions in, in, in Estonia. So this, this continues, even though there are sol- good solutions, but this continues, this discussion continues. So if you focus now on, let's say you you and I, we are working in companies who are building data identity products. There are also, for instance, governmental institutions who are building also digital solutions or services that rely very heavily on these data identity solutions. So from what is the role of technology developers and designers in addressing this, these issues, these, these cultural aspects of digital identity? I think the biggest responsibility we we carry is is to be mindful about this phenomena of the cultural differences and uh, not to sell this kind of digital utopia that that whenever you go to technical solutions and your culture doesn't matter your uh, infrastructure readiness doesn't matter it's just buy my tech and you will be happy promises should be avoided everywhere where it's possible even if there is a customer who is willing to buy that promise that, that's really, I would say, the threat in the world that I see. And maybe the other thing that is culturally uh, important and, and, and must be addressed, I would say, in, in those kind of sales processes and, and discussions about future tech is focus on really the cultural position of uh, government, of public sector, how capitalism and making money is perceived in society. All of those things have different perceptions and therefore your solution must suit the ideology that this culture is accepting. Either the government is the trusted and uh, well-meaning party in the society where everybody's welcoming stuff that comes from the government because it's always for the benefit of the, of the bigger, bigger good or the government is perceived as somebody who is sneaky who is always spying on you, whom you suspect of uh, 
making you guilty over the things that you maybe did or maybe didn't. So basically, being paranoid about the government. Uh, similarly, <laughs> you have to be mindful about if the private sector is something to be perceived as innovative, as providing service for the value they are actually getting from the market, if they are actually, I don't know, stealing behind the uh, people who are paying to them, who are overcharging everybody, who are greedy, or if they are really making the economy work and able to kind of collect the taxes in the uh, country at, at all. So like these perceptions are also reasonable to know and remember when we are offering what type of setup should a country, should a society, should this bunch of human beings who are requiring the digital identity, what they should ask for, what they should build for, what is the way how to fund, how to make that environment sustainable. Me being a capitalist believer, I'm always kind of telling that, that when we are building digital identities, we have to see if there is a way how somebody can earn something from the fact that digital identity is successful, that it is used, that it is spreading, that is actually making sense to people. And if such, for example, motivation is in the society, then there is a possibility that somebody will go after this benefit and therefore make the digital identity successful. If the like monetary value is taken away from the system, there is kind of everything is free of charge, paid by this anonymous taxpayer or government, then uh, there might be that, that we have an environment where if the government is trusted, if the government's promotional speeches about take it, use it, it's, it's for better good, talks could be trusted and, and could be a good vehicle for rolling out and digital identity. But it, uh, again, very much depends on, like, did we provide the same model that this culture accepts or we took a model from some other culture and tried to uh, sell it to a totally foreign environment for that uh, proposal. So I think that what, what we have to, as a technology provider, do, we have to really build for those cultures that we are, we are selling into and, and uh, building into. Yes, yes, yes. We need definitely to, to understand very well the cultures and where we are selling or helping with, this, with these technologies. As you said, in, in some countries, the government is the highly trusted and others don't. Then can be the banks are highly trusted in some countries and in other countries, not at all. And then same can happen with telcos. As you said, also the, the private sector, some technology vendors from the private sector. So yeah, that's, that's very important. And the first thing you said is about, um, yeah, be mindful what you promise. <laughs> that's definitely a good, good reminder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that this kind of naivety about, uh, technology being all good for uh, every different situation still lives on. Similarly, uh, of course, exists this uh, naivety that technology, wherever it is used, is evil. So I think that both exist, but you should never fall into one or the other. It, it is never so simple. Yeah, definitely. All right. I will ask you a final question. So for... All business leaders listening to us now, what is the one actionable idea that they should write on their agendas today? Yeah, I think that the uh, message, I hope, has been quite clear that when building and when asking for a technical solution, 
and especially as we are talking now, digital identity, if asking for digital identity, ask what is the fundamental belief of the environment where you are building it to. Don't try to change culture through technology. It goes the other way around. Culture defines the technology. Yeah, you, you said it very clear. Don't try to don't try to change culture with technology. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a very very simply and well said. So when we're hearing you your explanations came to my mind that for business when when people are when business people are traveling to other countries, there are some books that say for every or for most countries they say what is this is the business etiquette of every country. So you should read that before traveling to that country. So there should be a similar book, but for the digital identity, right? We should have for every country what are how you should what is the culture in every country in terms of uh, digital identity and, and identity? So we know yeah. before doing business. So that's something that came to my mind when I was hearing you. It would be nice if those books existed. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. I think you could be one of the co-authors at least. You know a lot about this. <laughs> oh, thank you very much, Kale, for this very insightful conversation. So please let us know if people would like to follow this conversation with you. What are the best ways for that? Yeah, you can definitely find me through LinkedIn or, or write me uh, our contacts in the skidsolutions.eu site are quite publicly available as well. So I'm a very public person in a sense, nothing is hidden. <laughs> okay, excellent. Again, thank you very much, Kale, for joining us and all the best. Yeah, all the best to the listeners as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity produced by UbiSecure. Stay up to date with episode at ubisecure.com slash podcast or join us on Twitter at ubisecure and use the hashtag LTADI. Until next time. <laughs>